2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, welcome back to New Books in Medicine, one of the podcast channels on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts on the network. And today we're talking to Nicole Hassoun, the author of Global Health Impact, Extending Access to Essential Medicines. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. I'm a professor of philosophy at Binghamton University and a visiting scholar at Cornell. So um,
1: I'm not sure what else you'd like to know, but yeah. That's fine. Tell us how you came to write Global Health Impact.
0: Well, most of my work is on global justice. I published a book um, uh, on globalization and global justice. And if you're interested in you know, world poverty and development, you have a lot of reasons to care about global health. I started the book maybe I don't know eight years ago now, Um, Mm -hmm. and uh, I I kind of followed on from the last project. Um, I think its arguments though are really relevant today, as you know the coronavirus pandemic is surging around the world.
1: Um, And so you say at the beginning. Oh, do you want to say more about that? Go
0: ahead. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) <laughs> no, um, I, I wanted to ask a question about the structure of the book. So at the beginning, you say um, that it kind of it takes the risk of of being interdisciplinary. And I, I think um, it is a risk. Um, so I wondered if you could just explain how as a philosopher, you engaged with different disciplines, and then how those disciplinary perspectives informed the structure of the book.
0: Sure. So, I mean, I think, um, I guess I think of the questions is really interesting. Um, The book is about the access to medicines problem and global health and how do we improve health and access to medicines. And so, you know, as, again, as this coronavirus pandemic surges around the world for the first time, many people know what it's like to lack access to those medicines and how important addressing um, those questions are. So, to me, those different disciplines provide different tools for kind of, kind of thinking about how can we better help people access these medicines. Um, as I, I mentioned, most of my work in the past has been on on globalization and and global justice more broadly on poverty and development. And so, even in those areas, you know, thinking about well, what are the what are the economists saying, um, or what are the um, people who are working on you know international trade from different disciplinary perspectives saying is really important and as my work on uh has kind of moved into the global health arena um focusing on what what can we say about the actual health consequences of medicines around the world has been a big part of that so i have a project that goes along with the book to measure the health impacts of various medicines it's a kind of collaborative project with people in pharmacy and uh economics and and health areas um and I think, you know, every discipline has something to add to that conversation. So from bioethics, from a, a philosophical perspective, the questions about, you know, our obligations to poor are really central in that. Um, that's kind of the the central feature of the book. I mean, it's a, it, it is an ethics book about how do we, you know, what are our obligations to extend access to medicines. But hand in hand with that, I think it's really important to understand what the empirical situation is. What are, are the facts on the ground? How can we better extent access to medicines. Um, And so that's all kind of in the book. Uh, I spend probably and have spent throughout my career as much time reading in other disciplines as I do in philosophy. So a lot of time looking at clinical trials of drug efficacy, for instance, Um, Mm -hmm. and I don't claim to be, you know, an expert in all these areas or anything. Uh, But I think, you know, I have published in economics and uh, in health public health journals and things as well, and and I just think it's really important to try to answer the questions with the best available evidence.
1: So the first section to me really did seem a little more philosophical, a little more theoretical. Um, I wondered if you could start by telling us what is the human right to health, and then who could possibly criticize such a thing?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if you think about it in the American context, the idea that people have a right to health is very controversial. People generally need private health insurance to access adequate care, even though we've seen changes in very recent years. Um, those changes are uncertain. And the the sort of legal right to health, even as it's articulated in international law, is not one that the United States has fully signed on to. Um, so the book defends the idea that everyone should, like morally should, have this legal right to health and it should be enforced and and, um, and people should be able to access essential medicines as one sort of part of that right. And that argument is, I guess it's sort of a traditional argument. Um, I have a, a view that I think that everyone should be able to live a minimally good life. And I talk a lot about what I mean by that in the book and that how um, important different kinds of health interventions for diseases like AIDS and malaria and TB and so forth are to protecting our ability to live you know, well enough. And I think that's one good reason to sort of endorse the right to health and think that at least as it's articulated in international law, where different agents have different obligations to help people secure access to medicines and, and other protections of their health, um, you know, that, that, to kind of endorse that that effort. Um, and of course, I think nobody should make it more difficult or impossible for people to access, you know, the things they need to live minimally while well, including Essential medicines. And so that kind of lays the groundwork for the the arguments in after the first chapter of the book and the subsequent so sections of the book, where I think the human rights should inspire us um, to think creatively about how we can better meet people's basic health needs. And I can talk a lot about that if you'd like, but I should let you speak too.
1: Sure. Let's before before we get um, that's my next question. But um, but before we get there, I wondered if you could say just a little bit more about how essential medicines fit into this right to health.
0: Good. I mean, so there there's the World Health Organization's essential medicines list. And I should be clear that's not what I'm talking about in the book. Although I think many of those medicines are actually essential. Um, What I'm talking about are essential as essential medicines are essential for health and life. Um, at least the, you know, the basic minimum of health people need to live, uh, a minimally good life as I put it, or a dignified life as they would put it in, uh, in the human rights health and discussions about that in international law. Um, so I don't actually, um, need to come down too specifically on what all is included in that. Uh, I take that is really is a question for, I, I think primarily providers and consultations with their patients, um, but to to sort of say at least um, because I'm focusing primarily on diseases, um, big global problems and diseases of the global poor that are that affect the global poor in the book, uh, things like malaria, uh, TB and HIV, at least those kinds of interventions that people need um, to fight those diseases are going to be included in the package of essential medicines. And I think a lot more than that as well.
1: Um, yeah. Okay. Now my next question is is the creative resolve question. So um, you argue that the human right to health fosters a virtue and you call that virtue creative resolve. Um, Tell us more about that virtue and particularly how it responds to a kind of scarcity mindset that would necessitate rationing of resources like medicine.
0: Yeah. So I think that um, one of the biggest objections to the idea that people you know, should have this legal right to health, at least in the U S context and in the philosophical literature is that, well, that's just really unrealistic, right? I mean, if you have to help everyone secure Mm -hmm. a basic minimum of health, there's not a lot else you're going to be able to do. Um, And it depends, I think on exactly how you think about the human right to health and the obligations that it generates in light of other competing obligations that we have. So, you know, people might also have a right to education. How do we think about trade-offs between helping people access education and helping people access healthcare and so forth. But um, but the idea that people shouldn't have a right to health because it's expensive and because we need to ration healthcare, and because some people argue, although I, I don't endorse this, they think that the human right to health can't help us figure out how to ration that care, I think is just misguided. So um, I talk about how I think the human right to health might help us at least extend access to healthcare very significantly. So I kind of follow Amartya Sen, who says, you know, in, when we when we think of health as a human right, that's a call to action right now to advance people's rights to health in the way 18th century activists fought for freedom and liberty. That's what he says. Um, and so when I talk about the virtue of creative resolve, that is a fundamental fundamental sorry commitment um, to trying to fulfill the right insofar as it's possible and you know, otherwise permissible taking into account those other things that matter. And more specifically, it requires us to do things like question evidence that we can't fulfill the right, seek out creative ways of doing it and then act to fulfill them. And so I tell some stories in the book um, and I have a lot of other stories I'd like to tell um, about how you know people in the past you know, in, the, in the fight for public health have really succeeded um, in embodying this virtue and extending access to medicines. Um, and so I don't know if you want to hear some of those stories or yeah.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. So let's hear some stories and, and, tell, and tell us how they illustrate creative resolve.
0: Yeah. Um, so I talk a little bit uh, in the book about the, the fight to extend access to essential medicines for AIDS, right? So um, I think by the 90s, at some point, people in in Europe and the US were living long and and healthy lives due to these antiretroviral drugs. But around the world, millions of people still couldn't access those medicines and were dying um, from that disease. Uh, pharmaceutical companies claimed it was impossible to lower the prices. So the prices were at you know, about $12,000 per patient per year. Yeah. So the um, cost of antiretrovirals was about $12,000 per patient per year. And, um, the human rights activists they refused to accept this claim. They said, "We're going to find ways of making access to medicines possible," and so that's the that first step, right? Refusing to accept that it's impossible um, to to help people access a medicine access, sorry, essential medicines um, without without sufficient evidence. And then they they came up with creative ways of extending access, and they galvanized this global movement um, to do that by educating patients about their rights and shifting public opinion um, on access to help bring that price down from, you know, $12,000 per patient per year down to about $350 per patient per year, which is, you know, much more affordable. Um, And there's similar stories, you know, about uh, the fight against smallpox or our fight to extend access to medicines for drug-resistant tuberculosis, so Partners in Health um, refused to accept, but going with them that, you know, this is just not a cost effective treatment for TB, right? Like drug resistant TB treatment is expensive. You have to give it for multiple years, where patients aren't going to adhere to treatment. They said, you know, everybody has a human rights health and everybody should have access to this medicine. And so, as a result of their efforts to demonstrate that it could be done in some of the world's poorest countries, access to treatment has expanded around the world. And many, many people who have drug-resistant TB today can access treatment because that organization demonstrates this virtue. So,
1: so the book, it, it kind of moves from, from making this philosophical, um, sort of laying the groundwork for this case, for the right to health, and then um, a virtue you call creative resolve. And then we, as you move into more sort of practical application, you give us all of these great examples of you know, government organizations or nonprofits um, that that, do, that illustrate that, that creative resolve. And then you move into talking about um, regulation of the pharmaceutical industry. So I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that. What role should the, um, pharmaceutical in, regulation of the pharmaceutical industry play in helping to promote a global health impact?
0: Yeah, I mean, so I think that you know, in the first place, the obligations to fulfill human rights really are obligations of states and states with the capacity to do that. The international community then providing assistance for states that lack that capacity or are or, or unable to fulfill rights. But we live in a in a world and where things are, you know, highly not ideal. Let's put it that way. There's a lot of people who really can't access medicine. States and the international community are failing those people and. I I take it that some of the soft international law, if you will, the the guidelines for pharmaceutical companies that the, you know, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights Health has advocated are are really quite plausible, that these organizations do have um, uh, kind of human rights-based reasons, if you will, for um, helping people access medicines at affordable prices and that nobody, no pharmaceutical company, nobody should make it difficult or impossible for people to access essential medicines that they need. Um, So if you endorse, you know, the human right to health framework, the idea that everyone should have this right that I set out kind of in the first part of the book, then I think it's pretty clear that pharmaceutical companies are failing to live up to those obligations. And in some cases actively violating rights by lobbying um, for these patents protections uh, and, and setting such high prices that make drugs, you know, inaccessible to millions of people because that the patent protections that they have helped institute have then the consequence that, you know, there's not generic competition. The prices are extraordinarily high, you know, $12,000 per patient per year in a country like, I don't know, South Africa where the average income is, uh, you know, way less than that. So, you know, doing that, I think, um, generates kind of obligations on the part of those companies to, 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 to kind of rectify that situation and also on the part of those who are supporting those companies. So I think pharmaceutical companies should be doing a lot more to help rectify these problems. And insofar as we can use data on global health impact to uh, create incentives for companies to do a better job, people should generally support, uh, you know, initiatives to encourage those companies uh, to live up to. Yeah.
1: Can you
2: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Can you tell us what global health impact is and how how we would go about measuring it?
0: Good. Yeah. So um, I think there's a lot of creative proposals for extending access on essential medicines around the world. Those that, you know, both start from incentivizing new innovation um, to extending access on existing drugs. And that really will need a broad array of different sort of solutions, if you will, to the access to medicines. Um, Problem, but but my own attempt to think creatively about this, um, I kind of alluded to at the start, is an initiative to incentivize um, positive change by evaluating the health consequences of medicines for some of the world's worst diseases um, in each country and area of the world. So, um, the Global Health Impact Project is that initiative, and what we do is we evaluate the health consequences again of. De- Drugs for malaria, TB, HIV, and and recently some neglected tropical diseases. We launched that at the World Health Organization in 2015, and again relaunched some of our newer models um, at Princeton last year. And so there's there's a website you can go to, you can check it out mm-hmm. global-health-impact.org/slash-new for our new uh, version of this. And and what we you know we kind of got some uptake for that project. I think it has an effect on advocacy, but the idea of kind of delinking the profit motive from pharmaceutical companies' incentives. That is instead encouraging companies to do things to have a greater global health impact, whether you measure it in exactly the way we do, and I can talk about that if you want, but um, or in some other way, I think is a is a really good idea that should kind of underlie or could be kind of tied to a lot of the existing proposals um, for extending access. So um I talk in the book about how, you know, a lot about how consumers could potentially use the information from this index to decide, you know, which company's products to purchase. So if you have you know two otherwise equivalent products from two different companies and one of those companies is having a great global health impact with their medicines, you might, I think, reasonably prefer to purchase things from that company. And so I talk about that kind of, I don't know, fair trade or global health impact labeling idea a little bit. Um, universities also make a lot of the drugs and technologies that companies rely on. So if universities made it a condition of the sale of their licenses, that companies should have, you know, high global health impact status, and they already, you know, make certain discriminations, like they prefer small US companies, um, then it might again, create huge incentives for companies to do what will get them highly rated. And the, I think the incentives are, you know, on the order of, you know, new drugs per year, for the global poor, which could be huge if you think of a new malaria vaccine or a new HIV vaccine or something coming out of this. Um, you can also tie the global health impact measurement to things like global prize funds, right? So if you reward companies for new innovations based on their global health impact, that gives them an incentive to focus on things like um, AIDS and uh, malaria and TB that are causing a lot of death and disability around the world and not uh, as much as, you know, I don't know, creating a new allergy medicine that treats a chronic disease of rich patients, which is currently their kind of most lucrative, some of the most lucrative options, I think.
1: Um, I don't
0: know if you want me to say more about that, but that's quite a lot, so I'll pause.
1: Yeah, if you could say, say a little bit more about the website and how um, the book builds on the work that you've done on the website or um, you know how the two complement each other. Um, if I am a, a consumer, that wants to promote global health impact? How do I use the book and the website together to do that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's, I guess, that that information is available. So we do provide on the website um, some information about the total health impact of the medicines that different companies um, either have produced and distributed or those medicines uh, which companies, patent-holding companies have kind of contributed to creating. Um, and so you can see uh, can see that and make decisions on that basis. It's um, kind of an idea, you know, for the future that maybe one day there will be something like a global health label on a product that you could walk into a grocery store and purchase, like you could imagine global health impact Advil or whatever. Um, and so, you know, I talk a lot about that in the book as one option. I think the the more important message of the book, though, is, is about, you know, how can we use data on these health consequences to promote global health? So it, it's not just through that idea. So if, if it turns out that this information, the global health impact, you know, information, which Snowview was listing on its website, you know, next to Forbes and whatever, turns out to be really valuable and valuable. And, uh, to companies, you know, as a, as an incentive, because people are, you know, you're doing socially responsible investment on that basis, or because um, employers, uh, potential employers, you, you know, their employees are looking at this and they're thinking, wow, this is really important. That's great by me. Um, it could also be something that, you know, law, uh, policymakers use if they're thinking about redoing, um, you know, the orphan drug law. So right now it, it turns out that, you know, some of these orphan drug designated, <laughs> medicines are, um, I don't know, I guess things that have been long, around a long time are being repurposed. There's some loopholes in that law. I think it could be useful to say reward companies um, for new innovations in proportion to their global health impact and potentially tie that to certain tax incentives or, um, uh, I guess, priority review vouchers for new innovations and things that are already out there.
1: So I don't know, is that helpful? So this, this, so yeah, no, no. So this goes far beyond like, I can, you know, buy a global health impact pharmaceutical in the same way I buy my fair trade coffee. Yeah, right. like perfect. There are, are yeah, lar- larger, you know, kind of um, structural and economic implications can just to back up a bit. Um, can you explain what orphan drugs are?
0: Oh, sure. So right now, um, companies uh, can get a pretty big incentive to do things that um, create drugs that uh, don't have a large market in the U.S. currently. And that may mean they have a large market elsewhere. So um, or there's a lot of people who would need the drug elsewhere. So, you know, a drug for malaria probably doesn't have a large market in the U.S., but it could be orphan drug designated. Um, At the same time, drugs are very rare diseases globally that have like three patients, period, could also get this orphan drug designation. And they get what's called a priority review voucher, which allows them to get expedited review of the medicine, basically of their choice, and they can sell this if they want. And that's very lucrative for the companies because if they can expedite the review of a blockbuster, you know, that's millions and millions of dollars of of profit um, in in that, basically a patent extension that they're receiving. Um, So I think that there's been discussion of reworking that um, incentive, given that, you know, Remdesivir, the recent uh, coronavirus drug, was you know the company Gilead wanted to get up for a priority review mm-hmm. and that. Obviously, it's going to have a huge market. At the client time that they were applying for it, it didn't have um, very many patients, so they were able to you know apply for that. And so there's some there's very big loopholes and problems with that. Um, I would say that uh, incentive, but at the same time, there might I think there's an important idea in it, and there might be ways of improving rather than just repealing the legislation. And that's not something I talk about in the book, but it's just another example of, you know, one of the ways if we could tie orphan drug um, designation to, you know, are these drugs going to have a global health impact can reward companies based on their global health impact. I think that could be one use for the kind of um, metric that we've developed for looking across diseases and interventions at the health consequences of various medicines. I also think, um, it's just useful information, right? So if you're, you know, a pharmaceutical company, if you are the World Health Organization, you want to know where you're having an impact and where you're not. And really, until I think the Global Health Impact Project, um, you know, we, we got this big, you know, Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which almost everybody's heard of by now, um, has, you know, spent 20 years looking at the need for shoe, which is a very important thing to do, but hasn't we haven't had as much attention to, well, what, what's the consequences of that treatment? But if you want to target interventions and measure impact and see where you're succeeding and where you're not, that's that's pretty important because then you can ask questions like, well, why? Why are we succeeding some places and others? And um, being able to measure that progress, I think, you know, is really important for public health, even if it, if it doesn't end up being a label on a, a product that you can get in your grocery store.
1: I mean, it's so it, it seems obvious like this would be a good thing to do, right? I, I mean, I don't know the way that you lay out the first two sections of the book, it 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 seemed uh, was very compelling to me. Um, in the last section of the book, you sort of you start to address um, some of the potential criticisms of the global health impact initiative. Um, can you describe some of those most serious criticisms, and then how how you would respond?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure which chapter, sort of what section you're thinking of. Um, as I remember, <laughs> it's been a while since I actually. As I remember the book, I go on from talking about um, you know, putting out some of these proposals and talking about the importance of data for promoting global health and data on health impacts in particular. Um, so looking at the global health impact sort of labeling idea a little more closely and saying, well, how can individuals get involved in this and um and there, are, you know, I talk about obligations to engage in ethical consumption pretty generally and to purchase things with ethical labels if that becomes a realistic possibility. And um, I can talk about that. Um Sure. I mean, yeah, okay. <laughs> let's, let's <do> that. <laughs> so um I think you know, you might think, well, OK, suppose there's this label and it creates incentives for companies to do more to promote global health and, and have a greater health impact. That seems like a good idea. Just mm-hmm. on its face, I should go out and purchase these things. And I think that's a pretty plausible argument. Like, I think that's a good reason to to purchase them. But, um, you know, but there's this question about, well, you know, you're just one consumer. And, you know, would you personally have an obligation to do that? Can't you just buy whatever you want? And shouldn't we be do- solving this? problem in a different way. And I think there's some, you know, there's some legitimacy to that question about, like, well, when am I obligated to purchase things um, with ethical labels? And so one of the chapters of the book looks at that question. And I say, well, look, if we're in under living under good rules and under good institutions, that is that, you know, really are fulfilling human rights and so forth then, yeah, I mean, maybe it makes sense to say you should be free under those rules to act as long as you respect them, you know, and and that would apply to consumption like everything else. But the truth is, we don't live under that, those rules, right? I think even in the countries of the best institutions, we're failing, we're failing um, to help people access even, you know, essential medicines for some of the world's worst diseases. And so, you know, I think then we need to think about well, what are our obligations when we don't live under just institutions? Um, and some people say well, you know, we just have to kind of engage in democratic efforts towards positive change, or at least that in order for us to consume ethically, all our consumption, consumption has to be kind of in, in help help us make that democratic change. And I think that's a mistake. I think there's a lot of things that are valuable and democratic change is one of them. Um, But we do have obligations to go beyond kind of engaging the democratic process um, to do things like um, purchase and create incentives for companies to um, Do more to promote global health and and fulfill their obligations, especially because we're implicated in supporting those companies, you know, and sometimes we don't have a good alternative to doing that. And we're totally off the hook, right? Like if you buy something that's life saving for your child, like that is clear that, you know, that doesn't generate an obligation to kind of, I guess, you know, not do that or something because the company's unjust, I think. You might have to compensate for that if you're able, if you have the resources and so forth. So this is really this section of the book's really aimed at, you know, an affluent consumer in a developed country and to say, yeah, I mean, I think beyond beneficence, because we are often purchasing things for these from these companies and there are better alternatives and you know, in terms of other companies we could purchase basically purchase basically equivalent products from if if it's, you know, shown that like enough of us will do this to make a difference and we should participate in that um, process as well. And you might say, well, look, you know, maybe not everybody has to contribute all of the time for us to have maximal health impact by creating the incentives for pharmaceutical companies to promote health and, you know, purchasing these labeled products or whatever. And I say, well, that, that's fine, but then everybody should do it 80% of the time if there's not a difference between people and the fact that other people aren't doing it or don't have to do it all the time I don't think that really gets us off the hook. Um, so a lot of the argument in the chapter is kind of aimed towards making that case and talking about, you know, the role of, of individual action versus um, democratic action and kind of bringing about um, positive change. So.
1: Yeah. So at the very end of the book, you um, talk about how um, this whole study that's, you know, of, of global health impact initiatives, Sort of give gives rise to new questions and new methodologies, and in particular, new um, sort of interdisciplinary approaches. Um, can you ex- talk a little bit more about that, or explain a, a little bit about kind of the, the methodological implications of global health impact?
0: Yeah, I mean, so I talk a little bit about how we do need empirical evidence to show that you know this will be effective, and encouraging companies to make changes if we had a label for instance um basically for pretty much any moral theory where you want to say we should we should do this because it will help save lives for instance well we will need empirical evidence to show that yeah this idea can help save lives or or whatever and and there's been some really good studies of similar kind of ethical labels for instance so uh, Michael Hiscox at Harvard and his collaborators have looked at fair trade in grocery stores and compared it to like a, a generic label, basically it just says, you know, I don't know, remember what the label mm-hmm. said exactly. Oh, yeah. But you know, they have some studies where they're like, well, are people willing to purchase fair trade? How much, you know, incentive will that create? And they find that yeah, it makes a difference. So some proportion of consumers are willing to do it. Um, and then of course, there's a question: Will that be enough to drive change within the pharmaceutical industry? And I think. Um, we've done some just initial lab research to show that it does affect brand perception. People do care about whether these companies are having a global health impact or not. And um, that's, you know, without educating people about what the, the label really is and why they should support this and so forth. So I am, I guess I'm cautiously optimistic that this could make a difference and it would be completely possible to test in a very similar way, whether people would be willing to purchase things with ethical labels, we just need a pharmaceutical company to partner with us to do that. Um, uh, And a grocery store or a pharmacy. But more generally, I think gathering data um, is uh, is a really important part of of making a philosophical argument. So we want to show that people should do something in the actual world because it has certain kinds of consequences in some cases, right? And Mm -hmm. to really bring those arguments to the ground, um, I think action guiding theories that, you know, include these empirical claims really need to be fully established. Like, we really need to engage with empirical research, if not do that kind of research on our own. And I'm all for, you know, philosophers kind of doing whatever they want, want, apparently.
1: Uh Um, You know,
0: but I think it, it doesn't mean that, you know, philosophers have to go out and gather that day. And often, you know, the best empirical methods, you know, I think have to be used. So it will be more effective to partner with scientists in doing that. And so I talk about the ways that, um, that you know, philosophers have started to engage in empirical work. Um, they do this largely what they call experimental philosophy. And, and I, I mean, I'm, you know, I've criticized some of the methods that, that people have used before, but I think you know, they're partnering in some cases with neuroscientists or with psychologists to look at people, people's intuitions, right? So people will say, well, you know, in this kind of case, people will agree that, uh, you know, such and such or whatever. And so people will say, well, do people really agree about that? And if that's an important part of the argument, I think that's interesting. It's often about people's beliefs. Um, But I also think there's a larger range of questions philosophers need to answer. And that's often to do with people's actions, And that there's a lot of different methodologies we should employ across the social sciences, and we don't see that as much as I'd like yet. So part of the the conversation there is to philosophers, but I also Mm -hmm. think it's important for scientists. So I I talk a little bit about, you know, how the values and things that um, uh, I guess philosophers are talking about um, really affect um, what measures we develop in science and how we view the results of that science and how philosophical theory can also contribute to the development of, you know, really important and interesting, you know, science. So in developing the global health impact, you know, metric, how do we measure health impact? I think, you know, there's some, there's some really interesting questions, uh, methodological questions about, well, what do you mean by health and health impact, right? What is sure. <laughs> and And so those are all questions that, uh, you know, I've considered and, and I think that, you um, we do well to consider when we construct measures of of things as you know, people would do well to consider as empirical scientists. So
1: does that make sense? Yeah, that does. That does. Um, Well, Nicole, we've taken up a lot of your time. Can you tell us what you're working on next?
0: Yeah. You know, I'm so excited that um, the book is coming out and I hope that it will be helpful to people. And as they think about how we can, you know, extend access on essential medicines to, to new drugs to, to treat the coronavirus and to restructure some of the pharmaceutical research and development incentives that we have in place that aren't quite working for us as well as we might want right now. And so I'm in thinking about that, I'm thinking about trying to do another book um, to talk about some of these stories and uh, some of the similar questions um, that came up in this book, but just kind of in a different way, maybe more um more engaging to a broader audience <laughs> I hope this will be engaging to an audience too but um but the other thing i'm working on um for sure is is are pretty uh, working on a lot i guess <laughs> is uh, an account of of you know how, what we should say we owe to other people as a basic minimum and i think that's also going to be really relevant to us is you know the economic consequences of the pandemic and our response to it, our faults around the world. So that's,
1: I guess that's what I'm working on. Wow. That's a lot of, a lot of good work. Um, (laughs) Nicole, I want to thank you again for taking the time to share your work with us today. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your talking.